Totally Football Show. Today, ahoy, Russia, land of bots and borscht, your World Cup lineup is settled. Peru, Australia, Denmark, and Sweden are coming, but not Ireland or Italy. We look back on the playoff action from Ericsson, trouble in Dublin, to the 0 0 at San Siro with Ventura fiddling like Nero. Then, weekend's action, Claxon, huge round of derbies from Rome to Madrid to the Holloway Road as Arsenal face Spurs. We'll be talking about all that and more, your questions, that kind of thing, in this Totally Football Show. Totally Football Show, everybody. Who's in today? These people. Dr. Michael Cox. Hello, James. You're not actually a doctor. <laughs> no, no, not in any sense. But no. it's like you are. So, thanks. Yeah. Uh, James Horncastle. Oh, right. I don't have a title, do I? <laughs> no, but in Italian, you would actually be dottore, no? Because you've got a degree, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. Bingo. Yeah. Actual doctor, Dr. Tom Markham, you're the kind of the, the football laureate, aren't you? Uh, I am and I am, I'd say, James, on that. All right. Downplaying it, but he is. Listeners, and this is very exciting. We have Tor Christian Carlson in. Uh, delighted you could join us, Tor. You're on a flying visit to these shores from your international world of football. Tor, of course, <laughs> as you, you, as, as people in the know will know, is uh, former scout, sporting director, CEO extraordinaire. A, a career that's taken you from grasshoppers to Watford to Bayer Leverkusen, Hanover, Zenit St Petersburg. Probably most famously, I think, for, for your spell at Monaco, when you single-handedly bought Mbappé, Bakayoko, Lamar, Cherry Henry as well, I think, no? <laughs> well, we, we, there's several eras you're, you're going yeah. into here. So, yeah, that would be... Um, I was there for a year and a half, not uh, 15, Okay, unfortunately. All right. How many languages do you speak, Tor? Four or five, I guess. Oh, come on. Yeah. Do you know how to say yes in Swedish? Yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go, because James Hallcastle doesn't. James, tack. <laughs> All right, excellent. Well, speaking of kind of international things, there's a World Cup on next summer, Dr Tom. This morning, a 2-0 win featuring Jefferson Farfan uh, put Peru into the World Cup. We've got a full set of teams now. Well done to the Peruvians, Sweden, Denmark, Australia. They're all going. Everybody's hurting a bit, I think, here today. Tor, because you, Norway are one of the few Scandinavian countries that's not actually made it. You've got Iceland, Sweden and, and Denmark. Denmark, of course, Dr Tom, who, who put Ireland out. They put us to the swords, yeah. In fairness to Denmark, you know, it was a brilliant start from Ireland, going 1-0 up. Two really, really good chances. The, the Daryl Murphy chance, that whistle by the post, you know, it could have been a very different game if it had gone 2-0, but um, Ireland seemed to pick every well. Ireland seemed to pick a situation where they'd make every individual mistake on the night. Ireland had conceded four goals in their previous eleven games, mm. so to concede five in one isn't necessarily great going. James, I just want to correct you on oh. one thing, given you corrected my Swedish. Yes, Iceland isn't part of Scandinavia. It's oh. a Nordic country. Oh right, it's not part of Scandinavia. Oh, sorry about that. So. There was a little bit of sniggering going on just now. That when was Dr. That. Tom was, was it that? <laughs> yeah. I wondered if you were kind of taking exception to him saying it could have been a very different game if Ireland is good. <laughs> no, I just saw him Google, is Ireland part of Scandinavia? Which uh, Iceland. Oh, Iceland. <laughs> oh, Iceland. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, Christian Eriksson. Neil Vincent says, how highly should he be rated in respect to the world's best? Is he in the top ten in the world? Tour. Well, it's interesting because um, I was sat about one exactly one week ago with some of the most highly esteemed football journalists on this planet, including James Horncastle was one of them. <laughs> and we did an annual top 50 players in the world 20, right. 2017. And um, 
and I will not reveal how it, you know, how it panned out. Because is this it's, for World Soccer? It's for a magazine called Josima, Norwegian magazine. Okay. And we do an annual uh, top 50 ranking. And I have to say that I had to push very, very hard to get him in, inside the top 50. Why do you think he goes under the radar so much? He plays a different role for Denmark. I think at Tottenham he's very, very much part of a, a wider machine, whereas Denmark, not a particularly talented team, one to eleven. But Ericsson really is their own, su- their only superstar, and um, his record in qualification was fantastic. I think he got eight goals in the in the main part of qualification, and then a hat trick here. I do think it's slightly damning on Ireland's behalf that really they had one player to stop. And they completely failed to stop him. It was extraordinary um, the amount of... Sp- it was like he had the cheese touch or something. Yeah, there was there was one goal, I think, was it the third goal maybe, um, that he scored, where he was just floating between the lines. Like, it was, you know, if you wanted to demonstrate to someone new to football what a player between the lines is and why they can cause so much uh, problems, that was it. Right, so how damning is it? For example, Ian Morrison writing and saying, after Martin O'Neill's tactical balls-up, what other notical, notable tactical balls-up can you remember? Is this up there with the worst ever? To what extent did O'Neill completely get this game wrong? I agree with, with Michael. I think we were all very surprised at the space that Christian Eriksen had and he could just do what he wanted. He, he wasn't necessarily too effective in the, in the first leg, so maybe that was part of the rationale. But, but sometime in the 90, you'd think they'd go... A hundred percent. But for me, you know, that element is very important in the results, but obviously it was the individual mistakes as well, unforgivable mistakes that you wouldn't see in park football from from the two fullbacks. So... Christian Eriksen had his chances. He's top class. He punished Ireland, and he's the best player on the pitch there by by a country mile. Mm. All right. Well, Denmark they look quite exciting, though. I mean, more than say Sweden. They have one of the best kits. Very nice kit. Mm. And another of the great kits, Peru, going through as I mentioned before the early hours of this 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 morning. So that's nice. One other of the really go- most gorgeous strips, the Azuri, won't be there. I say we're hurting. I think I'm right in saying that it's not really kicked... I don't know about for you, Dr Tom, but it's not really kicked in yet. It'll be next summer when the the full impact of this. I think maybe for Italy fans as well, there's a little bit of told-you-so Ventura. Yeah, I think uh, it felt like it's been trending this way for, what, three months now. Um, We talked about tactical blunders made by international managers. I think it all unravelled for Jean-Pierre Ventura when he went to Spain and he played 4-2-4 at Mm. the Bernabeu. And he lost face and never really recovered. And it's been quite incredible um, just following the fallout to this and how much tension there was between him and the senior players. Um, after that game, um, after the draw against Macedonia, where the players held an emergency team meeting, um, which he said he gave his blessing to, but clearly was just covering up for the fact that um, they were taking matters into their own hands. And then again, after the, uh, the first leg in Sweden, where they came back, they said, we don't agree with the system that you're making us play, we don't agree with the selection, and he apparently threatened to resign. Um, and then had What kind a, of threat would that be? Threatening not to resign, I think. He, said, he said, if you think you're such great coaches, yeah. you coach the team and I'll resign. Right. Um, and I think the, the irony is that when they failed to qualify, other Italy managers in the re- recent past resigned immediately, uh, and he, he didn't. Um, and he's forced them to sack him, pay him, what, 800 grand. Carlo Tavecchio, the Italian Football Federation president, also um, has yet to resign, thinking that if he can deliver Carlo Ancelotti, that will keep him in his position. Um, but, um, yeah, I think uh, a lot of introspection at the moment and soul-searching within Italian football to see whether they need 
root and branch reform, uh, reform or whether this was just a year, 18 months, where they were mismanaged mm. by one individual. The irony being, perhaps, that Italy has produced so many great managers mm. that they had the champions of, of, of England last year, champions of Italy, of course, champions of Russia with uh, Massimo Carrera at, at, at Spartak. Um, and they were left with... Germany as well. Germany Bayern. as well, with Carlo Ancelotti, of course, at Bayern. Although, but, um, yeah, then they were left with Ventura, who was kind of like the only man left to stand on the touchline. His performance on Striscia La Notizia, did you see this? Where they, there's a satirical show where they give the tapir d'or, which is this golden tapir to whoever's colossally screwed up the day before. And... Uh, he they hand it to him and he, he they ask him about the World Cup not going. He says, "Can you possibly you? What would you want me to do about it?" That's how it went. <laughs> there, was, there was a hilarious YouTube clip which someone posted um, a couple of days ago, uh, which was from his time at Bari, where he was doing a local TV uh, program, and there was a phone in, and someone said, "Oh, you've been doing a great job with Bari. Um, would you ever consider taking the national team job?" And uh, he laughs out loud and says, if the Italian Football Federation come and offer me the national team job, they should be arrested. (laughs) (laughs) There was an interesting article uh, by Rory Smith of the New York Times who pointed out that one of the things Italy has done wrong over the last few years is they've played too many friendlies. Um, The wrong friendlies? No, they've just played too many friendlies, which has uh, altered their uh, coefficient points very badly, which meant that they were second seeds for the draw for yeah. this qualification process and then went into a group with Spain, whereas if they hadn't played so many friendlies, probably would have been a seed. They probably would have got an easy draw like England got, for example, and we uh, probably wouldn't be talking about this. Right. What about Ireland? Do they need root and branch? I think so. I think the difference the difference between Italy and Ireland, well, there's obviously lots of differences there, but um, we did a piece, you know, the tour was talking about... Uh, players that are coming through and the best players in the world we did a piece with football manager for 442 on who are the 100 most exciting players coming through and such a proportion of them were Italian so the the next generation looks very very good for Mm. Italy whereas Ireland there doesn't seem to be too many people coming through so we might need to uh, to start giving out a few more passports and uh, <laughs> going down that route we, we, we should send send a few people over to Brazil for reproduction I'd say and maybe <laughs> play it that way yeah, to be fair Italy aren't too bad at giving people passports as well Ooh, Ooh. that's so very true Jorginho who was hailed as the riding to the rescue the white knight and did in the first time at least a fantastic job in Signo Left on the... What did he get? 15 minutes across both ties and played in the wrong yeah, position? didn't play at all in Ex- the second leg and De Rossi obviously gesturing. Yeah. What do you want me to come on for? We need to win this game, not draw it. That was an extraordinary moment, wasn't it? James, quick quick one there on, on that um, as well. That The game, the referee was was crazy. Like yeah. There could have been five, six penalties in yeah. that. James and I were discussing that before and it, it was just a bizarre situation. Yeah. It was uh, a Mike Dean off. It seemed like he was. <laughs> yeah. Dean has a rival on the continental stage there. For Although I think Mike hands. Dean would have given some of those. Yeah. Yeah, some of those decisions. Italy, of course, are uh, prospectively going to take part in what's been called the World Crap, uh, the pre World <laughs> Cup tournament in America. Uh, Tori, you across this? Where oh, various nations like the United States. Oh, we'd probably win that one. <laughs> <laughs> Netherlands, Ghana, Chile, and, and possibly the Azuri. Uh, in talks with the US Soccer Federation. Mm. I'm surprised we didn't get an invite there because surely if you wanted to fill stadiums in the States, it's Italians and Irish. There you go. Mm. 
while we were busy watching uh, all that playoff football, we forgot to look at England. But luckily, Ian McIntosh went along to the games. We'll be talking to him after this. Listeners to footballing podcasts will know that there's enough tough decisions to make these days without having to worry about which razor to use. So why don't you take the hassle out of your shaving routine by signing up with our pals Cornerstone. Never run out of blades, never need to shop again, just let them know how often you shave and they'll take care of the rest. Get £10 off your first order and find out more about your perfect shave box at cornerstone.co.uk totally. Ian McIntosh. Hello. England. Yes. I read, uh, took on two of the best sides in the world, kept two clean sheets, blooded a whole bunch of youngsters. Very successful week for Gareth Southgate. Oh, very successful might be pushing it, but there's, there's green shoots there. You know, you go up against those kind of teams and you don't get pulverised. That's always a, a plus, given England's form of late. Um, there, there are also lots of aspects of the performance. There was certain composure in there, particularly with what was a relatively inexperienced team. It's a very good performance from Joe Hart as well. There weren't many shots to speak of. This is the Brazil game. It was very much England on the back foot. But they didn't look that flustered at any point. So, And it was a proper Brazil team? It was a proper Brazil team and they really went for it. Most international friendlies tend to kind of peter out about the 57th minute when everyone makes all their substitutions. But yeah. this one didn't. They kept pushing and pushing and pushing. It was. A, I think the notion is that the Brazilian players, the Selecao, were, were looking to earn their places in, in, in Chiche's uh, squad for, for Russia. Inside the far post asks, are there any uh, historical precedents for expectations of England getting needlessly inflated by a couple of half-decent friendly showings six months before a major tournament starts. Is that where we are, in, Or no. do you think something different is going on? <clears throat> no. I mean, Southgate was very clear afterwards in the press conference to say that you know, Brazil are far further ahead in the process of building a team than England are. England are at the very early stages. There is nothing coming from the camp about, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to turn them all over. I think it's just enough at the moment to have a team that looks borderline competent. Mm. We'll see what the draw holds. That's coming on the 1st of December, is it? Yes, and England in pot two. Okay. Uh, hoping to get Poland, who are seeded first. Okay. Well, that that would work out. And we, we always like playing Poland. You do get Poland a lot. Yeah. Hmm. We'll see. We'll see. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. North London derby, everybody. Arsenal haven't won in six games against Spurs. Six. (laughs) Ooh, but they have won ten straight Premier League matches at the Emirates. Dr Tom, you're going to be there, I think, on Saturday, are you? No, I'm not going to be there. I have a season ticket at Arsenal, but I'm going on a marriage preparation course. So obviously, uh, what? Oh, what? That's the acting. Can we explore this more? <laughs> I don't know how. It, it, this was the only day we could do it. So yeah, I'm going to be probably watching on my phone. I'd say. Um, far bit from from me to envisage the kind of scenarios you'll be put through in a marriage preparation course. Do you know what it consists of? Um, not really, to be honest, but, you know, the, the lovely Eleanor said we needed to go on this right. before we get married. I actually organised my, my our marriage date mm. around the two-week window before when the season finishes and the World Cup starts, so but you might that didn't work out very well. Crap, <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to miss that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in a sense, giving up the North London Derby to go to a marriage preparation course is marriage preparation. <laughs> Uh, last time Arsenal took on a big club uh, was the City game and it was 3-1 to Man City but I think even that scoreline doesn't really illustrate the the chasm between them how nervous should Dr Tom and Arsenal fans be tour ahead of this one 
to me, Spurs is the team to beat now in North London after all these years of Arsenal dominance. And I think Spurs go there looking to to win, win comfortably, to be honest. On the budget they've got, Tor, how have Spurs been able to put together such a, not only such an exciting side, but such an exciting young side? Well, I think it's planning for, you know, a decade, basically, and investing in youth development and putting the right people in in place to to run the academy and obviously having a manager as well who Mm -hmm. believes in in, in playing kids. Tim Sherwood, yeah? And Pochettino afterwards. Yeah, I mean, and I think it also comes from the top, you know, Daniel Levy, I think is done a remarkable job mm. over over 15 years certainly has harry kane is it 6 in 5 yeah 6 in 5 against the gunners uh he was off games last weekend with i don't know was it englanditis that or was there a genuine issue there i think if it was a tottenham game he would have played okay uh, there's no uh, hugo loris though so uh, paulo gatsaniga comes in again uh, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure. Michel Vaughan might be back because he's oh. the number two. Gazaniga's the number three. But Gazaniga did very well in his um, previous appearance. I think everyone had forgotten that he'd signed for Tottenham, actually. But uh, it's not often you have a, a relatively experienced third-choice goalkeeper, but it's proven quite useful for Tottenham. Right? Must be the best job in the world, being a third-choice goalkeeper. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, famously, uh, was it Richard Wright at Manchester City negotiated himself a, a travel bonus so he'd go with the squad every week and uh, basically be on standby in case one of the two goalkeepers dropped out. But that was on top of his extra wage. So he was being paid just for going onto the pitch and hmm. launching some dummy crosses towards um, Hart and uh, Caballero or whoever was there. It's a role that uh, David Priest has also previously <laughs> occupied and enjoyed enormously. He, he did mention this as being the best bit about football. Ah, did he? Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so Kane, you think, probably will play. Ali and Winks, who, who both were out for... For England, Ericsson, we mentioned in an absolutely amazing form. Dr. Tom, would Lacazette be in your starting lineup for this game? Definitely. I think you need a predatory goal scorer that can put the ball in the net. You know, traditionally, Arsenal have always created chances. This game has always had lots of goals as well. So for me, he should start. Tour feels you should be very nervous. Can, can you give us a rationale as to why Spurs should be worrying? Um, well, you mentioned the city. Uh, Results. Mm. Arsenal were very hard done by in that game. What do you feel in in terms of refereeing decisions? I think that the second offside was was a joke, and I thought they did okay in that game. And City are a much better side than Spurs in in my eyes. Mm. I think the whole. I agree completely with with Tord. I think, as I said on the show before, I think Daniel Levy's done an incredible job. Spurs have lost their. Uh, their sort of talent identify, well, identification guy in Paul Mitchell. Hmm. He's the guy who brought in Deli Ali, but a, a really, really top guy. Probably the best English talent identification. Uh, well, you'd almost say prospect, but he, he does it, you know, but he's still quite young. Hmm. Interesting. Paul Mitchell. Yeah. Right. Pochettino's on 99 Spurs wins. He'd love to make it 100 against Arsenal, wouldn't he? Is he? Apparently. In all competitions? That's incredible. That's incredibly quick. If that's true, if that's true, says Michael Cox. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Eric's it does seem quick, though, doesn't it? We've yeah, been there three years. Yeah, yeah in all competitions. Lot. Fair play to him. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Ericsson said something quite interesting on international duty, which sounds very obvious, but it was um, about the stability that there is at Spurs, and how his performances, particularly how he's gone to another level over the last, let's say, six to eight months, are down to um, that group of players all signing long-term contracts, knowing that they're going to be there, be around, even though there's 
fierce competition for places. They all feel very secure and safe in themselves. You look at Arsenal's best players, Mesut Ozil, uh, Alexis Sanchez, their contracts are up. They haven't performed anything like we expect them to um, this season. Um, Wenger's spoken about trusting in their professionalism, but yeah, their numbers, goals, assists, way down on what they were at this stage last year. Mm. And at the moment, even though you can say, obviously, there is stability at Arsenal because Wenger's been there for so long, it's a different kind of stability and I don't think it's necessarily conducive. Um, it's not the same environment that we see at Spurs, which I think is a big part of, of why Spurs now, as Tor was saying, yeah. feel like a, the preeminent team in North London. Tor, how much do you think it's Arsenal's fault that Ozil and Sanchez are down to... To, to the last months of their contract. If a player wants to do that, what can the club effectively uh, do themselves about it? I think, first of all, you have to, to show them that you're ambitious. I mean, that you, you know, that you want to win things and that you want to challenge and you want to, you know, that you are the best option for the players, not just there and then, but for the next four or five years. And so had you been in charge at Arsenal, what would you have done with Sanchez and Ozil, for example, but other uh, players previously? Obviously, the Wenger situation doesn't help them because obviously players, if they're going to commit themselves for a long you know, period of uh, time and a very crucial part of their careers, I mean, both of them, this would probably be their last big contract. They want to know who they're going to play for, you know, and obviously with Wenger having just extended and now just got this year and another you know you left guessing basically so okay. I think that affects the stability um, as well OK what do you think is going to happen at the weekend? I think Tottenham will win it I think um, you know it will be tight as a derby obviously but I think Spurs will come out top Alright Will you mark Ericsson, do you think? Will they put a man on Ericsson? <laughs> they probably should, although I think Arsenal are a little bit stronger than, than Ireland in terms of this, particularly the midfield that, that came out in the second half of that game. So uh, I think it'll be... I'm going to go for a 2-2 draw. All right. James, Michael? Can I just say, I think it's a really interesting game in a tactical sense because Tottenham have been quite good at playing big games this year. They, they've had a couple of defeats against Chelsea and Manchester United, mm. but I've been quite impressed with the way they've sat off deeper, particularly that game against Dortmund. And I think that kind of counter-attacking style will be quite conducive to playing well this weekend against Arsenal. And I think from Arsenal's point of view, this is the first time really where you look at last season's league table, you look at this season's league table, Tottenham are a better side than Arsenal. There's not really any question about that now. And I think it'd be interesting to see whether Arsenal almost accept that and do what you're meant to do as a bit of an underdog in a derby, which is make it into a battle. You know, all those years, for example, when Manchester United were a better team than City, City still made it into a battle. There was, there was almost a kind of, the derby made it a bit of a leveller. I'm not sure whether Arsenal have it in them to really be fierce, to, to get a good atmosphere going, and basically to make life difficult for Tottenham. And I feel that this, you know, if Arsenal play their usual game as they do at home, where they've got a very good record, they've won the last 10 Premier League games there. If Arsenal just try and dominate possession and, and take the game to Spurs, I think on the break they could be really exposed by, uh, in, in particular, Son if he plays. Right. Because he's, um, he can be a, a, bit, um, a bit erratic in the final third, but he's just so quick. All right. Pochettino's team talk, will it be... Lads, it's Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, Spurs have only won twice uh, away at Arsenal in Premier League history in wow. 93 and 2010. That's amazing if it's true. It is true. <laughs> it is true. Okay. Yeah. All right. And you mentioned Dortmund. Of course, Spurs have Dortmund away on Tuesday as they vie for supremacy in that uh, Champions League group with uh, 
or Real Madrid principally, Cologne for the Os on Thursday. Uh, also, in kind of top-of-the-table-ish news, Chelsea, who are currently in fourth place, are at West Brom. Chelsea, by the way, are only three points down on where they were last season in a title-winning campaign. So Antonio Conte having won three in a row now in the league, taking on a West Brom side who are one point off the drop. We were in Birmingham. When was that, last week? Yeah. Folks there seem very much convinced that Tony Pulis does plays no part in their future plans. Yeah, he did not seem particularly popular mm. with the people of Birmingham. Right. Um, Just below Chelsea in the table of Liverpool, they're in fifth, Dr Tom. They've got Saints at home. They faced Southampton four times last year. Do you know how many goals they scored in those four encounters? Many. None. <laughs> None goals. <laughs> well, I was close. Uh <laughs> No, I, I think, well, it's it's sort of Southampton's old team against Southampton's new team, really. Right. Um, but no, it could be a very, very exciting game. Yeah. For Van Dyke, particularly, they're going to, what, kidnap him, stick him in a laundry basket or something, do you think? Amazing defender. We, we were discussing this at the weekend, that uh, he's one of those type of defenders that's actually physical, but can play football at the same time. A little bit like Simon Kier is, a, you know, he same for Denmark, really. So, uh, yeah, I can understand why they want him. Do you expect, and Tor, I don't know if you have any view on this, do you expect Liverpool to go back in for him in January or is the no they received from Saints definitive? Well, they'd probably do it the right way this time around. Which would be? Well, would be to contact Southampton and politely ask, you know, whether they would be prepared to open negotiations. And why didn't they do that the first time? I don't know uh, the exact background, but, uh, you know, the way it would was portrayed in the media was that they obviously went through the agent and you know kind of the back back door back channels right yeah. but that that is also a quite a well-worn route because you want to check with the player before you bother going yeah. to talk to the club no most of these transfers are opened at i would say informal level hmm. precisely the way you um, you 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 described there james and but obviously southampton were very very strong and you know wanted to also send out a signal that they're not having it that way, and if you want to buy players of the them, line toward in terms of what's acceptable in terms of informal um, contact and what's tapping up, or is it a very fine line? I don't think you can ever prevent clubs from speaking to an agent, you know, and that's the buffer. And but once you, I think, start meeting with the player and you know put ideas into his head, <laughs> I think then you're on dangerous territory. But as long as you just, you know, speak into one party, which is the agent, and the agent, you know, then moves on, speaks to the player, the club, to get an understanding how, you know, how can I move this on, or, or, or we better back out. It's natural that Saints might choose to say no, but how surprised were you that Liverpool then didn't make any other uh, defensive signings? They didn't seem to have any other plans. Yeah, actually, I thought there's a lot of sort of game gamesmanship, and I and I thought. Van Dijk would end up at Anfield in the end. I mm. thought that would be the outcome. But, you know, fair dues to Southampton for being, you know, strong in and, and sticking to their principles. No, I think, uh, you know, there's obviously need for defensive uh, reinforcement at Liverpool, but it's not easy. And uh, I do see the point that, especially in January, um, there's very, very few clubs around, especially in this country, that are prepared to give up on their uh, centre-backs. And then if you go abroad, then you... You have to expect whoever you bring in, uh, you know, half a season just to adjust. Yeah. So it's not an easy one. And not cup tied, of course. So that would uh, add to his attraction from Liverpool's point of view. Southampton, who 
had probably the easiest set of fixtures thus far in the Premier League, but haven't done particularly well with them. They're only, well, they're four points off the drop. Only played two teams so far who finished in the top 10 last season, one being Man United, who they lost against, and, and West Brom the other. So they've got a lot of ooh, testing fixtures on their way. Man City, who are very much on top currently, are at Leicester. Now, they lost there 4-2 last season. Jamie Vardy hat-trick. And they've actually lost two of their last three meetings with the Foxes. Freddie Brizzle, great name, says, with the reported injuries of Aguero and Jesus, is this the start of the City blip the rest of us have been waiting for? In brackets, no short answer. Uh, what's happened to Jesus? Now, Aguero, he fainted at half-time. Oh, he had dizzy spells while playing for Argentina against Nigeria in a 4-2 defeat, actually. Mm. What's happened to Jesus? This has caught no, me unaware. Freddie, let us know. Okay, but... <laughs> But given the form of Demarai Gray, which has been sensational since Whispering Claude took over there at the King Power, and given the total disarray that obviously Man City are with their players flying off around the world, what do you think, Dr Tom? Odds on an upset? I don't think so. Mm. I think uh, I think City, even if you know they don't have any of the strikers in place... Otamendi's out as well, I forgot to mention that. Well, that's probably an advantage... <laughs> Really, <laughs> I don't necessarily rate him as the as the the best defender in in the Manchester City squad. No, I think they're just too strong. I saw actually um, that Gabriel Jesus was was been sprayed with something during that Brazilian game. I I presume it was relating to injury and not pesticide or something. Oh wow! So or passes. Uh, it might have been passes. But, but yeah, so uh, he didn't look too bad. He did come off. I don't know whether he can still play at the weekend. We'll see. Right. Mm. Okay, Aguero, by the way, the Argentine Football Association said that he'd had a blackout, was taken to hospital so that routine ex- examinations could be made as a precaution, but apparently w- w- was fine. A bit, bit worrying, that, though. Yeah, I, I think um, I think City can cope without Aguero and Jesus, actually, because they've got so much attacking potential from their players. Uh, maybe not any natural centre-forwards, but you look at the way Sané plays, De Bruyne gets in goal-scoring positions. I think Raheem Sterling as well, has um, he scored, I think, seven Premier League goals this season. And the interesting thing about those goals is they've all been struck from between the posts. He's basically drifting inside to to become a, a secondary centre-forward, really. So they've got goal-scoring potential from lots of positions. Wow. Where'd you I, get that from, Michael? I looked at uh, the goals he scored. No, no, okay. That's just yeah. a really interesting point, actually. Yeah, well, it's, it's quite an interesting contrast because obviously Sané's playing on the other side and the majority of Sané's goals are when they switch the play out to the flank and he's breaking in behind the fullback. So Sané and Sterling playing very different roles. Uh, I disagree slightly with Tom about Otamendi, who I think has had quite a good season. And this is, I've said this before and I always get lots of stick for it, but I think the longer City go without playing Vincent Company will be a positive for them. I think every time he comes back, he looks rusty. He's really difficult for the his fellow centre-back to play alongside because he's so obsessed with trying to win the ball high up the pitch. He's not actually very good at that. He doesn't. I don't think he has the body type for that. He needs to be kind of staying in deeper positions and, and defending on the edge of the penalty box. Um, and if they, re- if they have to recall him for a long period, I think that's where their season could, uh, you know, could take a hit. Tweet us at The Totally Football Show. Find us on Facebook and check us out at thetotallyfootballshow.com. If you haven't heard the latest edition of The Totally Football League Show, you won't have heard Martin Mad Dog Allen. By the way, is it okay to call Martin Allen Mad Dog to his face and that? That's right. He approves. Okay. But you won't have heard him talk about his life in and out of the dugout and that time when he jumped in naked to the Solent to G up his Brentford players. When we pulled up at Hartlepool on the Friday afternoon, the team hadn't won away from home all season. 
all the players were doing a little warm-up and talking about swimming across a river. And I was stood about 10 yards away with my horrible face on. And I, after a while, I sort of, this is why they're doing their stretching, I sort of turned round, looked at them, walked towards them quite, um, you know, with that aggressive type of style and said, instead of talking about it, why don't someone get in and do it? All you lot do is just talk about it. I'll swim it. So the captain sort of looked at me and he was a tough northerner called Stuart Talbot, now a prison officer. He said, well, go on then, five for each, five for a man. So I looked at him, I said, yeah, don't worry about that, I'll do it. So I, I took all my clothes off, put my trainers back on, ran round the other side of the river, crossed the bridge, over the other side, faced them. All the players are staring across the river. They're all laughing and smiling. And I was stood with my tummy in bits, took a couple of deep breaths and just jumped in as far as I could go. It was only about 20 yards across the river and swum as hard as I could, climbed out of this muddy bank on the other side jumped out and sort of Rambo-like stared at all of them and said, if you say you're going to do it, then there's another word that I'm not going to put in, then you've got to do it. And I ran back to the hotel. And when we got to the ground the next day, there was no team talk. We beat them 2-0. We celebrated in the dressing room. And that, I believe, was the start of us staying up. Pre-season bonding trips, they often involve kind of trips to the Arctic tundra to be whipped with birch sticks and that kind of thing tour. Is that the kind of thing that you get up to at IK Star, <laughs> either as a pre-season thing or just in general? Well, we we haven't... I mean, we, we had a bit of, um, you know, um, exciting season now. We just got promoted, thankfully. But um, even when we had a sticky patch, we didn't, you know, grab any sticks or, you know, oh. we didn't start beating each other. Up, uh, you okay. Know, we, we we beat up the opponents instead on the bingo, pitch. and it worked because because famously before you arrived, IK Star of Norway were on the longest run without winning a single game across any top division in Europe. How many games was it by the end? Um, well, we tend not to talk too much about that, but uh, <laughs> I think it was thirty odd in the end. Okay, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Benevento are coming for you. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think we point this weekend. I'm predicting they might do. Sassuolo. Yeah. Sassuolo. Yeah. Well, all right. Monaco, meanwhile, you were part of uh, Dmitry Rubalovlev's relaunching of the club when it was down in Ligue 2, uh, which also featured Claudio Ranieri. It did. Yeah, absolutely. you brought him in, no? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was it was good working with him, you know. Great, uh, I think, right man at the right time. And, mm. You know, great person, very uh, strong leader. Uh, I think we had about 20 nationalities, so it also helped having somebody who worked across different European countries, and uh, it, was, it was a good period. Mm. And, uh, did he have a catchphrase? Because he, at uh, Leicester was very much dilly-dong, and I think now at Nantes it's uh, lock, the, lock the doors. Mm. Yeah, before you decorate. Lock the doors before you decorate. I'm summarising here, but uh, what, what, what did he say in France? I, I can't remember. We, were, we, we used to speak Italian, Okay. you know, uh, among us, because he obviously brought Italian stuff as well, and he was learning French at the time, so uh, we didn't get that far to... You know, um, okay. build uh, that kind of uh, you know legendary legacy. But uh, I think yeah, he deserves a lot of credit for what's you know what's happened at Monaco over the past five years. Laying the groundwork for Leonardo Jardim's uh, success. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, it was last season in particular was a, was a, was amazing. What do you think about the way that I know that they're still second in in Ligue 1, for only four points really behind this juggernaut PSG, but their Champions League campaign's been absolutely woeful. Is it just the fact that they sold so many great players? I mean, that's kind of the 
Yeah, I think it's a combination of you know different factors. That is obviously one that you every every summer they're forced to sell um, you know top players to particularly to the Premier League. Yeah. So that's almost a price of their success. But um, I think also after the sort of the climax, you know, the end of of the season mm. with winning the title after so many years, and I think it's hard then to mobilize as well for right. the same level of performance. But but they'll be back, and I mean. We talked about Tottenham, you know, laying the sort of, you know, foundation for future growth. And Monaco, you know, been doing that kind of work for 15 years. I mentioned and, loads of star names who come in there. Of the ones that you that came in under your watch, which were you most pleased with? I think the credit goes to the youth department, really, because they keep picking up these 14, 15-year-olds um, and just, you know, see them coming through at, at 17 and then... You give them half a season and they are, you know, ready. And I think the one player that we that we decided to bring on the preseason um, tour, I think it was the last, the very last name that was booked. And that was a kid from, I think he was 18, that was Yannick Carrasco Ferreira. Oh, wow. That we just took with us and we played in Newcastle, I think, in the first friendly. And he was just unstoppable. And Ranieri said to me after the game, look, this kid you just took along is the best player. He's the best player in the squad. Right. I said, are you sure? And, yeah. and then um, league debut, he scored, I think, screaming from 30 metres, direct free kick. So I think he's the one that really, you know. Magnificent. Talk yeah. about future growth yes. at Monaco. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw, I think uh, Sotheby's sold a Leonardo da Vinci painting <laughs> today for 450 million. Yeah. And the seller. Is that Euros? Euros. Yes. And the seller is believed to be Ruba Lovelev. Yeah, interesting. And do you know how much it went for in the was it in the sixties or the late fifties? Clearly, I don't. Yeah, about fifty-five pounds. No. Yeah, because they didn't. It wasn't initially thought that it was a a real uh, Da Vinci. But that's inflation for you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they might have some money to spend then if he's made that sale. Mm. It's a little bit prosaic to mention it, but Monaco playing Amiens this weekend off that extraordinary a bit of auction news. Uh, four points behind PSG, who host, as it happens, Claudio Ranieri's Nantes. So very much lock the doors and put away the decorating <laughs> gear at the Parc des Princes. Uh, right. Hey, Palace are taking on Everton. That's a huge game in the Premier League. Palace are bottom. Everton are only two points from the drop. What's going on with this finding a manager thing? Dr Tom? It's crazy because they've been so close to, you know, A, Koeman probably had to go under the circumstances, but you think they would have had someone lined up and even the way the bookmakers' odds have gone from Sean Dyche to Alderdice to you know Marco Silva to Thomas Tunchell, all of these names. But you'd think with the resources, the stability that that tour was talking about earlier on at Everton, the the actual wealth of playing mm. experience and and you know good level players, that someone would definitely want that job. But now it looks because of the precarious position in the league, they seem to be going for the the sort of shut up shop you know, situation and that's why Big Sam's been linked. Ironically at the time when West Brom wanted to get rid of a manager like that, when mm. you're looking at a squad that looks like Fulham's squad, a very aging squad that could go down without having that type of manager. It's interesting, isn't it? You got um the two O'Neills are coming into the mix now, I suppose. Martin O'Neill's reputation how how it stands after what's well, gone. I wouldn't be getting Martin O'Neill involved. I mean with the greatest respect to him uh you haven't seen a great deal of tactical acumen from him. I think he'd really need a, a proper assistant 
I say proper assistant, that's not to <laughs> criticise Roy Keane, um, but an assistant who's, who's kind of different from him and who's studious and who does the tactical right. things. I think, going back to Ireland, I think O'Neill and Keane's a weird combination. They don't have the kind of football brain in there. Um, so I don't think Martin O'Neill would be um, mm. in the running for these kind of jobs. I really like Michael O'Neill, though. I think, yeah. you know, the, the way he plays football, He I think he does deserve a shot at, at a bigger job, you know, a bigger or club Or Scotland. Job. Yeah, he's been linked with the Scotland job. I'd like to see him in a, in a, in a club job, really. Mm-hmm. about Graham Potter? Yeah. Mm. Of course. You know, English managers, they need a chance. It's not just Ray Wilkins who says that. <laughs> what, what, what interests you most about this fixture, Michael? Uh, I th- just think it might be an obvious thing to say, but I just think it's a really huge game looking at the league table. Palace are four points adrift. They're playing an Everton team that clearly are not very good. Unsworth's done a decent kind of, you know, rally the troops job. But, you know, from watching their last two matches, I'm not sure that there's been a, a huge improvement. And I think it should suit Palace. You know, they've got two really fast players up front in Zaha and Townsend. Not natural centre-forwards, but players who are very good at playing on the counter-attack. And Everton have been quite vulnerable to the counter-attack over the last year or so. Partly because they want to play possession football, but partly as well because they're very slow. From Everton's perspective, going back to the manager thing, if Everton get a win here, they could go up as high as 11th place. Hmm. And then you think, well, maybe we'll just persist with Unsworth and, you know, wait until a good manager comes up. But if they lose this, they're dragged back into the mix. And you think, you know, a managerial appointment probably needs to be sped up. Absolutely. Benteke beginning to get back into the picture for Palace, who... I'm not sure what the update is on Loftus-Cheek and his fitness after his revelatory performance for England against Germany. Is he going to be fit? I have no idea. Does I'm it not matter? A doctor, um, but uh, they definitely need to share the goals around more. Okay. Um, because Here's a stat. They've, well, they've only had two two players have scored for Palace. That's it. Wow. Two players. And I think when Benteke comes back, that should weirdly um, actually benefit Loftus-Cheek because Palace are playing... They basically don't have a centre-forward, so they're right. playing Zaha and Townsend up front. When Benteke comes back, they'll probably go 4-3-3, and then Loftus-Cheek, who's been playing on the right, can come into his favoured central position. I see. Morales and Schneiderlin were both dropped from Everton's win against Watford for not taking training seriously enough, but they're back in the squad. Just a little red light there of uh, possible issues within uh, the dressing room. Oh, do you know that Palace haven't beaten Everton... At Sohurst Park since anybody? 1995. Oh, Michael, 1994. Okay. <laughs> when Take That's Never Forget was number one. Actually, on the subject Ooh. of uh, Take That, Martin O'Neill's greatest contribution at uh, international level is still slagging off Robbie Williams at France 1998. Isn't what it? did he say? They were in the studio together on the BBC, and, and O'Neill basically said he was very impressed. Robbie had. Has, was enjoying such a successful solo career because he, he can't write songs, he can't play an instrument, he wasn't that good a singer. But he phrased it as a compliment whilst also right. saying that Robbie was useless. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, he's a fantastic talker, uh, Martin. Yeah. His performances in the 2006 World Cup when he kind of famously opined that nobody knows anything while staring at Alan Shearer uh, <laughs> were, were a joy. Yeah, he also said Ibrahimovic was rubbish, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, he did that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's Palace Everton. Also in that kind of mix of teams at the bottom, Watford hosting West Ham in the David Moyes debut. With, he, he's begun with the Churchillian, if it works, great. If it doesn't, then I'll see East End of London for seven months, then go elsewhere. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he's brought in Stuart Pearce with him. OK, would you, after your strong words about the, the Keane-O'Neill partnership, how do you feel about Moyes-Stuart Pearce, Michael? Yeah, well, I mean, what Moyes is, is 
good at or was very good at at Everton was as a kind of training ground coach. You know, he's a very studious guy. He scouts the opposition incredibly thoroughly and then adjusts his game plan. I think what has been clearly lacking from his last couple of jobs has been, you know, the personality, the leadership. And uh, Stuart Pearce has a history at West Ham, was there before. You think he's the kind of man that can maybe motivate a Mark Noble character. Um, is that what they need to motivate the noble? <laughs> yeah, motivate the motivator. I think it's become so bleak there. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's an entirely illogical appointment. I think that could work nicely. Okay. Do you remember that um, that game? Uh, Moyes was in charge at United when they played against Fulham, and United had eighty-one crosses in that game. And the remark then was, I think Rio Ferdinand said this in his biography. He said, "We, you know, it's no use playing that way when you don't have a player like Andy Carroll." Now he does have an Andy Carroll. Now he has an Andy Carroll. There you go. Look out, Watford. Swansea at Burnley. Burnley a seventh. Quick reminder of that. Burnley a seventh tour. How impressive is that? Also, they're not just seventh because they've had easy games. They've played, I would argue, most of their most difficult fixtures. Yeah. So they've been picking up points on the road. Yeah. I think Burnley are becoming an example of how to run a football club and, you know, establishing themselves on, on, on a very, you know, sensible way in the Premier League and you know I don't think I don't know I wouldn't have tipped them for for relegation before the season it's one of those that you think are now can become a stoke you know that if they lose how solid are they as a club solid enough to survive losing say Sean Dyche to to Everton I think Sean Dyche is very you know integral to the development of that particular football club so Mm. I think it's also a case of a lot you know, depends on that depends on him. So obviously, him leaving would be absolutely catastrophic. Right. They have metrics actually. They're one of the only clubs that you know take it very, very seriously in terms of KPIs for a manager. They've actually in the past looked at the managers who've spent the least per point, and they, like that's one of the very simple sort of metrics. But they do have a system in place for appointing managers. And obviously, if, if Deich did leave, I'm sure they'd make the right appointment again. Who else features highly in the kind of points per pound? I know that Jose Mourinho doesn't. <laughs> the, the one, <laughs> funnily enough, the, the last time this was covered in the media, the person was Brian Laws. Really? <laughs> was, was the name that came up. Ex-Burnley. Exactly. <laughs> wow. That's well, traditionally, Allardyce does quite well in, in terms of not spending money on transfers. The problem is he does spend a lot of money on wages, so I don't know whether that comes into it. Um, On the subject of metrics, this is the game between the two sides who have had the fewest shots on target in the Premier League. So, uh, yeah, I'd be amazed if there's more than one goal in this game. Okay, well, the Tykes have had clean sheets in five of their last eight games. Uh, They're coming off back-to-back 1-0 wins. Did you know that almost half of all their Premier League wins ever have been 1-0? Fascinating. Bournemouth are taking on Huddersfield this weekend. It's true. West Brom are up against Chelsea. Brighton have got Stoke on Monday. And, of course, there's Man United, Newcastle. That's a late game on Saturday. We've got all sorts of interesting things to say about that. So we're going to keep that back a little and be back with you after this. Listener, there's still plenty of time to vote for your favourite writer, newspaper player, website and podcast for the FSF Awards. The address is fsf.org.uk slash vote. Lock the doors, as Claudio Ranieri would say. We're going to be live on stage at the O2 on Wednesday the 29th of November along with our very special guest, Kevin Bridges. 
Did you see Kevin's tweet about this? No. He said, uh, I'm going to be joining 90s icon <laughs> James, <laughs> James Richardson on stage. And it's true, he will be. On, but I think I'm joining him rather than the other way around. But anyway, Wednesday 29th of November, if you'd like to see that, and who wouldn't, then you need to get yourself along to uh, the O2's website. Also because producer Ben says that he is going to personally give away a very fancy Sony Xperia tablet at the event with a copy of the new Football Manager game on it. Or is it Ian's old one? Uh, well, maybe Ian opened the box, but they can definitely have a copy of the game. Brilliant. All right, you own Ian Macintosh, don't you? <laughs> we do and we don't. Um, now, Ian loves Football Manager, obviously. and as Really? As I've said before, it keeps him off the streets. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're delighted with the, the new game, although he doesn't seem to be very good at the new game, so right. I think it's going to take him a little while to get back in. I've it. never played Football Manager, Dr Tom, so I'm really the kind of, you know, I'm the demographic you're aiming at. What 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 would you say about the new iteration that would to entice me into its its clutches well it's it's obviously you know it's designed for educated football fans so you are our target audience so i'll make sure that i get you a copy all after right this. bingo excellent do you have chinese takeovers in it we do have chinese takeovers and we actually have chinese language now and it's gone down extremely well in china so the, the sales are up i think in around 200 percent in china brilliant okay uh, anyway, if you wanted to come along to the uh, event at the O2, uh, details are on our uh, Twitter and Facebook pages or the thetotallyfootballshow.com. Uh, let's talk about Italy, James. Um uh, going to cheer myself up this weekend by watching a bit of Serie A because, boy, have they got some exciting fixtures. Mm. Saturday night, I think, is going to be quite exciting because uh, Milan play Napoli at yeah. the San Paolo. Um, a Milan side that uh, won just before the international break and gave... Vincenzo Montella, a bit of a reprieve. A one-game reprieve, would you say? And what a one-game to have. Napoli next. Yes, and I think uh, yeah, Napoli are still unbeaten in the league. Um, they've won all but two of their games. Also, uh, Insigne will be fresh. Insigne will be very fresh <laughs> and will be playing. Um, one player who won't be, though, is the, the left-back, uh, Fauzi Goulam, who got injured um, in the game against Man City. Um, and that was one of the turning points in that game. Um Napoli didn't score without him. I think they drew nil-nil in their, their last game. Uh, that left-hand side is a big part of uh, of that team and its success. And uh, Milan will have their best player playing on that side, Suso. Um, so whether they can uh, impact the game that way remains to be seen. Obviously, I think Napoli still be favourites. Mm. And uh, earlier... Right, a classic Saturday, game, though. So that's Milan-Napoli. And then before? It's the Rome derby. Wow. And uh, I think... Uh, this is, again, another super game because um, both these sides um, kind of written off, really, at the start of the season, um, doing better than expected, um, arguably pushing themselves into the conversation for the, the title race as well. Um, two managers who know this fixture very well, Eusebio Di Francesco and uh, Simone Inzaghi, who uh, both played in it. Di Francesco, in particular, made a statement with that win against Chelsea, 3-0. Um, Roma now looks to be very much his team. And Inzaghi just keeps getting better and better. Mm. Um, made a statement of himself with, with those two wins against Juventus, one in the Super Cup and then the other one at the Juventus Stadium. So uh, lots of talented players on display, particularly in midfield. Nayingalan on the one hand and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic on the other. Um, so, yeah, it should be a fantastic game. Right, of course. Nanny, Nanny. In, in the Lazio squad well, these days. This, Are you going to mention the shirt? 
No. Go on, you go with yours then. Okay, no, I was just... I mean, these teams are already performing at a very high level, I would say, but um, what you can see is that there's still considerable upside uh, to both of them because, um, you know, one of our favourite players has yet to really play for Roma, Patrick Schick, who's back in the squad, and then uh, Lazio have got uh, Nani, and we haven't seen Felipe Anderson yet. Right. Um, so, yeah, these these teams have other gears to go to. Excellent. Speaking of gear, that that, that nanny shirt, he wears the number seven, oh, yes. which you as an Italian speaker tool will, will enjoy because nanny, of course, means dwarves. Dwarves. So he basically, <laughs> his shirt, he says seven dwarves, which is great because so often, you, well, like with Harry Winks, why was he not given mm-hmm. uh, the number 40? And I think there was another example this week in the it National League, the Ebb's, Fleet, Ebb's Fleet, yeah. where Mambo mm. is not wearing the number five. Mm. But he says he did ask for it and the club wouldn't give it to him. Yeah, and he's a centre-back as well, so he should have a number five. I think, I, I gather this morning they've done a, a special one-off number five show oh, that they? they're auctioning for charity, which is a, oh, a right. nice way to make the most of their publicity. Yes. Uh, that Napoli draw you mentioned after Kulheim's injury, James, means that uh, Juventus, I believe, are now just one point behind them at the top. Mm, yeah, and they play against Sampdoria, which uh, should be uh, another... At Sampdoria, where Samp have won the last five games. They've won every game uh, well, at yeah. Marassi this, uh, <laughs> this season. And um, yeah, again, uh, you might say that they are not the mirror image of Napoli, but they're a team that um, play in a very similar style. Mm. Um, you know, it was uh, Napoli's manager, Maurizio Sali, who basically got Marco Giampaolo his chance again in the top flight, and he's never looked back with... and. They are a mini Monaco, Samp. Um, you know, they keep finding players out of nowhere, you know, playing for youth groups in Poland or in um, in the Czech Republic. And uh, within a year, sell them on, rebuild the team again, and um, don't miss a beat. And, uh, yeah, they've been very impressive, Samp, so far this season. But they're probably about an hour's drive from Monaco, aren't they? Not even, perhaps, mm. along the coast. Um, newly promoted Benevento, who are now one game away from breaking Man United's world record of 12 consecutive league defeats from the start of the season, take on Sassuolo, and you are saying that Benevento are going to get the win. Yeah, I think, I mean, Benevento have been relatively unlucky um, in that they should really have got their first point uh, in the second game of the season um, when um, yeah, they had a stoppage time injury um, uh, equaliser ruled out by video-assisted referees. Now, if VAR wasn't around, they would have had their point already. And they've, they've, I think they've maybe lost six or seven games only by one goal. So it's not as though they've been completely outclassed. Um, but, um, yeah, Sassuolo, uh, not the force they once were. Um, and maybe at risk of relegation and, and considering sacking their manager as well. Um, of course. All right. Tor, you've worked in Germany, uh, Switzerland, Russia, France, England, Norway, of course. A lot of people ask, is Serie A coming back? Should we take it seriously, etc., etc.? What's your view on Serie A right now, the state of it? I used to be a big fan of Italian football, actually, in the 90s, and late 80s. It was the icon, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously. When I, when I moved over here, I was, you know, became an even bigger fan seeing, you know, James having his ice cream and, you know, pink paper, obviously. <laughs> but uh, I think financially it's going to be hard to, you know, attract the best players when you've obviously got that gap between the Premier League and yeah. and um, and, uh, and Serie A. But I think they are kind of going a bit back to the roots and they are becoming, you know, focusing more on developing their own players. And I think that is the only way you can really compete now. A lot of money has come into Serie A of late, but largely from, from China. And Dr Tom, you were kind of hinting darkly last time you were in about the ramifications that might be awaiting one or two clubs in Italy 
from the point of view of UEFA's fair play regulations, but I think just generally from basic economic sense that there might be chickens coming home to roost. What, what news? Yeah, well, it, it's funny because you mentioned FFP, mm. and obviously I think UEFA are looking at that now in terms of finding a way to loosen it slightly because if they, if they uh, operate rigidly, obviously the English clubs have so much more money along with Barcelona and Real Madrid. So they're, they're obviously trying to find a way to even up the playing field. But in terms of Italy, we've, we've had our, our takeovers. And obviously in the, in the case of AC Milan, it's been a little bit of a mess. So we could end up with uh, a US hedge fund owning the, the club that lent money to the Chinese current owners. I think they're obviously frantically looking for a new buyer, but they paid you know, an astronomical amount for the club at the time. So Silvio Berlusconi was running to the bank again. Um, but no, overall, I, I think um, I think Italy is rebuilding well. The, the main issue is obviously the stadia, and traditionally the municipal stadiums have caused problems. Juventus have, have shown how they can move forward on that front, and I think it's going to continue that way. And you look at the strength of the brands, mm. And you look in China, I know Italy were one of the first nations, you know, you had Super Cups been played in Beijing. You speak to Chinese people and, and they still hold, you know, Italy in, in the highest esteem. So I, I think the potential is there. And you only have to look at some of the results that are rolling in. You mentioned the Roma result against Chelsea. You know, Napoli probably gave the best, uh, you know, let's just say opposition performance against City this season. So I, I think the future is potentially rosy for Italy. OK. Well, that's good news, eh? That's good news. Uh, the future for Newcastle and Man United in the short term. Let's discuss that now. This has one of the best stats of the weekend. In oh, fact, I think this is better than Michael's, is that uh, Rafa Benitez could become the first manager to win at Old Trafford with three different Premier League teams. Right. Liverpool, Chelsea and uh, Newcastle. Newcastle. But he would be bucking... You know the the only other person who's done it with two? Another one of Michael's favourite managers. Martin O'Neill. Martin (laughs) O'Neill. There you go. It's pretty pretty rare that uh, Newcastle do get a win there. They've only returned from Old Trafford with three points three times since the war. And this time, they're going to be facing a Man United bench that may include Paul Pogba and him, Dr Tom, him. Zlatan. Yeah. You know, would it be great to see? I think we've all asked this question to ourselves. Is he going to come out of international retirement for for the World Cup? Well, he he tweeted straight after Sweden went through its hashtag, we are Sweden, which whether that means, what does that mean? Well, Tor is the, the Scandi in the room. That's true. What does that mean, Tor? Well, I think he's on board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. For you as a Norwegian, does it make it worse, Norway not going, the fact that Sweden and Denmark will be there, or will you kind of root for them a bit? Well, I'm, I'm not going to speak for the entire population on this one, but okay. uh, I'll speak for myself, and I rejoiced in the, the you know, both Denmark, but particularly Sweden. Your Scandinavian brothers? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think it's good for the football in the region, you know, and it, it inspires us as well, you know, and, it, you know, uh, Iceland obviously qualified. Although they're not know, technically Scandinavian. Yeah, Nordic. 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 Yeah. But uh, no, I, I enjoy it and I'll be following, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be supporting Sweden, absolutely. Rather than Denmark? Yeah. Why is that? Closer neighbour. Okay. Because I can't understand what Danes are saying. <laughs> I, I don't understand Danish. <laughs> <laughs> really. So what did you make of Jose Mourinho after... 
150 million roughly spent in the last two summer windows, saying that he needed to spend a lot of money again this summer in order to challenge. Does that seem fair? Is that actually the realities of his situation, or is he just doing a Mourinho? Uh, yeah, he's doing a Mourinho and he's doing his job. I think one of the main, he's, kind of most important tasks of being a manager is to put pressure on the club to, to spend money. Okay. I but is he so. not. Because uh, to me, I've, I felt that was him making an excuse for not doing his job. Surely, if they spend that much money, if they buy him the, big, the most expensive squad in the world, which I think it is, is that right? Or he certainly was last season. Shouldn't they? Do they not have a right to expect more than just him saying, I need you to spend more money? Well, I think he obviously feels that he needs even even more quality. It's and, fair to and, s- and, and unless he's top of the table, that mantra is going to continue. OK, well, he's, he's in second place, which isn't bad. They are eight points behind Man City, but you know, possibly we should cut him some slack because Man City are making everybody else look bad uh, this season. Of course, if they get the win, and of course we mentioned before Man City are going to slip up at Leicester, so that could dramatically change things ahead of the derby, which is coming up uh, soon. Mourinho against uh, Rafa Benitez, Michael, is that a... A duel that... Uh, there have been some fragrant encounters over the years. <laughs> well, they haven't, they haven't. The interesting thing about this is they haven't met one another as manager for over a decade, which is amazing no. considering they're two of the foremost managers in Europe. But it kind of makes sense when you remember that they've kind of followed each other around Chelsea and Real Madrid and uh-huh. into Milan. But yeah, before that, they met each other 15 times in just over three years um, when they're both in the Premier League together. Uh, Benitez will be desperate to frustrate Mourinho, and I say frustrate Mourinho rather than beat Mourinho, because I think this will be quite a defensive performance from Newcastle. But Benitez, you know, he's he's the kind of great strategist. He loves watching the opposition and trying to find weaknesses, and this international break means that he'll have plenty of time to have done that. I expect he probably will have watched all Manchester United's matches in that time, trying to find weaknesses. And what do you think um, he will have spotted in there, Michael? Well, again, I think it will be a defensive-minded approach, but, you know, one of the things he will have noticed I'm sure because we've all noticed it um, is that Romelu Lukaku hasn't scored for I think seven games now mm. I think Newcastle will probably sit quite deep um, and try and deny Lukaku space in behind I think Lukaku's actually done okay in those games without actually finding the back of the net but we haven't really seen him play a kind of hold up role you know he hasn't done for example what I think Olivier Giroud does very well for Arsenal which is playing back to goal feeding runners and I think that's what United will need to do this weekend they'll probably have a lot of the ball and I think they'll have license to push men forward into attack whether they'll do that I think um, is the question but it'll be good to see Pogba back because I think he's the kind of player who can do that Um, maybe hasn't scored as many goals as he should throughout his career but I think that's probably the the next step for him in this Manchester United team which I think is pretty much based around him um, you know getting into the box and scoring more goals and this kind of game when United will have lots of the ball Newcastle will sit deep is the kind of game that he can maybe influence. All right. On the subject of Lukaku, who has, as you say, not scored in seven for Man United after notching up 11 in his first 10 games, did score for Belgium on Tuesday night in their friendly against Japan. Uh, That was in Bruges. That makes him Belgium's leading scorer of all time, 31 goals and 65 appearances at the age of 24. He's Belgium's all-time leading scorer. He's 24 years old. Exactly. Uh, Man United should have Phil Jones back as well. He was taken off early against Germany. Not a great week for Phil. Luke Shaw reversed into his £200,000 Bentley in the Carrington training ground. (laughs) Yikes. Okay, United have uh, Basel away on Wednesday following that. Do do you fancy Benitez to get anything from this, James? Um, I think it's... I mean, you look at United's record 
uh, Old Trafford this season, mm-hmm. uh, it's completely changed uh, from what uh, what they were doing uh, this time last year, where they were drawing too many games, um, found themselves frustrated against teams um, in Newcastle's kind of position in the table. It's one of the reasons why they signed Lukaku, because um, he could um, bat away teams like that. But um, yeah, you look at United at the moment, I, I think uh, it's it, there's always a chance when you come back from an international break to be caught cold, particularly when you've got so many internationals. Um, and yeah, maybe Benitez will... Um, will be confident of that. I think Newcastle have to not only start well, but finish well, because United's record when it comes to scoring what in the final 15 minutes of games um, is, is better than anyone in the league. So um, so I, I still think United have a, have a very good chance of winning this one. Mm. All right. Mm. Excellent. A couple of questions to finish off people have been sending in. Oh, first of all, a salute to Travis Newton, who claims that he got without Googling uh, Duncan Alexander's World Cup up to trivia question. Yeah, the rest of you were quite poor, I thought. Cheers, Michael. No offence. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I can't really argue with you there because I don't think any of us even made a stab at one of the answers. The Batistuta one. That's a tap in that. I not only couldn't get the answers, but I got one of the questions wrong because I claimed that <laughs> World Cup 38 was in Italy when, of course, it very much was in France. Mm, yeah. France. Tech. <laughs> um, Mark Canary says now that we know who's not going to the World Cup can you revisit the best wildcard team entry and worst Carl Lafferty starts up front he says without getting through the entire squad Tori who's the player you're most going to miss at the World Cup well tricky one I don't think those who've sort of well uh, eliminated uh, really deserve to be there So, but uh, you know I'd miss you know, Italy defensively, Buffon. You know, would right. have liked to see him. Swan song there, maybe Robin as well. Who yeah. Always, you know, picks up in uh, in the big on the big stage. Yeah. Have you got two. a player, Doctor Tom? Cyrus Christie. Okay, <laughs> popular choice, James. I was going to say Buffon. Right. Yeah. But don't do a Jurgen Klopp. You're allowed to have a second kind of option. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean he was the only one that right. I would miss. Just okay. just missing even his. Yeah, singing the national anthem. That, that was the thing that that game because I mean he hadn't talked about it because the assumption had to be that Italy were going to go through. So when it got into the last twenty minutes, and I'm thinking, but this means mm. and the, the whole thing, and then he breaks down and after the final whistle. When he went up for the corner at the end, yeah. I, I, and Florenzi kissed the ball as he put it down. Yeah. I just, I just, about fifteen times. Yeah, I just wanted <laughs> Buffon to head that in and have his Jimmy Glass moment, but yeah, wow. it didn't happen. Didn't, did it? Michael, have you got anyone you're particularly going to miss next summer? Uh, yeah, Ian Robin, I think, you know, a player who very nearly won it in 2010 mm. and I think was probably the second best player last time behind James Rodriguez. Wonderful player. I'm, I'm very sad he won't be there. Well, world crap is the tournament for you. <laughs> <laughs> Buffon, I'm not sure if you'll be featuring at that if Italy yeah. go, but you'd like to think so. Cezanne uh, asking about the most good-looking kits of the next World Cup. We've kind of talked about that. Oh, here's one tour. Uh, Dream Sislak and Dr Tom you'll have your view on this as well in general how early are transfer deals completed for the following season after our discussion of Van Dyke being kind of very much late so when you're in sorting out your plans for next season when do you look to get your transfers sorted by I think uh, you'd you know once the transfer window shuts in you know early September mm. or late August you start working on on the next window, on the next window really and right. there will there will be deals already that you failed to land in August that you tried to revitalize for January so it's an ongoing thing technically you have to to make 
you know the sort of the, um, the registration all that stuff you cannot physically do that before you can't click the button before the transfer window opens again i think which is 8th of january or something so you know it's an ongoing thing you might close a deal even you know the day after the the, the window shuts right or 14 seconds after the window shuts well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's this case so, what do you make of that well i think it's i mean we even at our level we had a cliffhanger as well we we signed a icelandic center forward called Fluki Finnbogason from from a club in Iceland and I think we came I think it was 12 minutes before the end of the transfer window uh-huh. but that was it, it was a matter of negotiation it was uh, you know the Icelandic club were holding holding on and they wanted to keep the player for for Europe because obviously our transfer window coincided with um with kind of qualification rounds of the Europa League so it became that became an issue but uh, right. in the end we, we got it over the line so it's not just about mismanagement and messy you know lack of planning sometimes it's just you have to you need that deadline to get you know the urgency required to, yeah. to make the deal happen oh, well that, yeah. in all w- w- walks of life that Do, are fax machines still involved or not? No, it's funny, actually, you asked me that question because I came into the office um, the other day uh, and I wanted to fax a document to um, something not to do with football. It was a Mm -hmm. private thing. And I said, so I was there in front of the the Xerox and I couldn't work out how to fax. And then somebody told me, no, there there is no fax liner. We discontinued the fax, you know, five years ago. Really? So... I think it's um, it's really becoming obsolete, and it's more yeah. of a legend than reality. Really, yeah. hmm. that's a shame. <laughs> we did, on the subject of deadline, we, we mentioned this before. Johnny Blaine, who's who's now a, a stats guy, but pr- previously almost scuppered the Arshavin deal to Arsenal when he forgot to press send, and luckily they were able to arrange the agent Steve Cutler was a, able to arrange an. Oh, I think the clubs. Arsenal were able to ex- arrange an extension because it had been snowing a lot that day. I'm not sure how that quite worked out, but anyway. That's Premier League in a nutshell, though, really, isn't it? That if it's a big-name player like right. and you know, they'll happily bend it a little bit. But if it's someone that they don't feel is necessarily going to add to uh, their global sorts of audience, you right. know, they don't get through. I've never used a fax machine. What? Ever. I probably never will now, will I? Now it's been discontinued. My, my dream's over. It's only an IK start that it's been discontinued. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I suspect I can't remember the last time I used one. Yeah, you're not missing anything, Michael. They're miserable things. Okay, maybe it will make a comeback. You know, like vinyls made a comeback. Maybe twenty years. Or James. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> steady on, steady on. Well, that's it for today's Totally Football Show. Um, thank you so much for being with us, Michael Cox, James Horncastle, Dr. Tom Markham, and Tor Chris and Carlson, and producer Ben, and you listeners, and everyone who sent in those excellent questions. Monday, we return to discuss all the stuff that's gone on this weekend and look forward to the big midweek European fixtures. So I hope you'll join us then and have a splendid weekend in the meanwhile. Bye for now. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddyneesmedia.com.